my training as a teacher was don't teach anyone anything. Help them to discover something. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. I love this conversation so much, and I know you're going to love it too. And just before we dive in, I have incredible news. My book, Come Home to Your Heart, is now available for pre-order. And I have the link in the show notes if you're interested. It is part personal essay collection, part guided journal, and it's all about really tapping into your innate wisdom and falling back in love with yourself. I wrote it for you from my heart to your heart, and I really hope you'll love it. So you can check that out. Let's dive in to this amazing conversation with the incredible Susan Piver. All right, my friends, you are in for a special, special treat. So we have Susan Piver with us today. Susan is not only a New York Times bestselling author, she's a Buddhist teacher, she's a meditation instructor, she's the founder of the Open Heart Project. She is a wonderful human, and I found out about her through our dear producer, Michelle Rado. And so we're here today to talk about all the things that you love hearing about, which is writing, which is the spiritual path, and also Susan's new book, The Buddhist Enneagram. So without further ado, welcome, Susan. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, so happy to have you. So I was listening to a wonderful conversation that you had on the Good Life Project. And one of the things, one of the many beautiful things you said on there really caught my attention, which is that I'm paraphrasing, but you said, we're not authoring our lives, we're more shepherding them. (laughs) And I loved this. And you're actually going to make me change the signature of my email because I had something in there about like, you can author your life, something like that, just a play on words. And um, it doesn't feel right. We can be authors, but maybe not the authors of our lives. (laughs) So I'd love for you to start off the conversation telling us about your journey to becoming an author and how maybe there were some surprises along the way. Yeah, thank you. The whole thing is a surprise. I'm not trying to be cute. The whole thing is a complete surprise, which may be a vote in the yay column for shepherding rather than authoring, (laughs) because I could never have authored this. And everything in my writing life I literally fell into backwards and I'm not trying to be cute about it. It just, I never said, let me, I'm going to write, I'm a writer. I want to write a book. Here's a proposal. Let me find an agent. None of that. It all happened backwards. Meaning I was getting married. This is more than 20 years ago now. And I had never been married. And, you know, obviously it's a very important moment. And I wrote down a list of questions to ask my then boyfriend, we're still married, about our life. 
because I had this epiphany that just because you love someone doesn't mean you can make a life together that you both love. That was surprising. So I'm like, well, how much money do you have? What is your kid going to call me? Where do you want to live? Just questions that you're going to have to answer someday anyway. And a friend of mine said, oh, that would make a good book. And I lived in New York City at the time, and I did some work in the music business that also peripherally involved writers. So I knew a couple of agents. And so I asked one, do you think this would be a good book? And he said, I don't know. Here's how you write a proposal. So I did, and it, it sold, and, and nothing happened. You know, so I was very proud of it, I, but, and, but then I just went back to my life. And then two years later, I was sitting at my desk and the Oprah show called on the phone. As one does. <laughs> yeah. As they, yeah. So, oh, really? Ha ha. Is this a joke? And they were producing a show about what ha- called what happens after the wedding. And I ended up being on for that topic twice because it was proved to be a popular topic for their audience. So then the book became a New York Times bestselling book. Who knew? And because it sold well, I got offers to write other books. And they were horrible. (laughs) And the next books I wrote were terrible. (laughs) But okay, you live and learn. And then suddenly I found that I was writing. So I'm not, again, it's not like, oh, I was so lucky. I just, you know, slipped on a banana peel and ended up in the New York Times bestseller list. No, that would be nauseous if I thought that's what someone else was saying. But that is how it happened. It, It just was happened to have that way but then uh just briefly the next books were so bad i mean they weren't horrible but the relationship with the publisher was horrible because they had huge expectations mm-hmm. and i didn't i could not fulfill those expectations so the relationship went very sour so i thought i would never write another book because it actually was traumatic mm-hmm. and maybe three years four years went by until i jumped back in I'm so happy that you gave an honest telling of the journey of a writer because Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this in her TED talk, The Elusive Creative Genius. (laughs) And she said, after Eat, Pray, Love came out, there was such expectation that she could understand why authors are driven to drink or, or anything else, any sort of other destructive, self-destructive behavior, because the pressure is so high. And she found that she had to create a mental construct of eliminating that pressure. Hmm. And the only way that she could keep writing was by just saying she was going to show up for her job and that it was her muse's job to make it good or not. It didn't matter either way. She was going to show up for her job and write, but whether or not it was good or, or crap, that was up to the muse. <laughs> well, they did a good job, those muses. So <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think they did all right. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm so glad that you talk about that part of it. And I wonder about, you know, now you have Lionheart Press. Mm-hmm. So Tell us a bit about your journey to that. Yes, that's a, an in-house press. Because as just this little story illustrates, I've had the highest highs and the lowest lows in the world of publishing. I mean, the unbelievable explosive success and then abject failure and rejection. Just 
and PS all within like a couple months. So I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, well, then I went back in and I'll get your, I will, this is a, a long way of answering your question. I wrote other books because my Buddhist practice became so central to my life. And I kept seeing things in it that were very helpful in an ordinary life. And I wanted to share those things. And they were fine. Those books were good. I like those books. And they sold okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but each time it was still painful. It's painful to work with a publisher. And I've worked with some of the great ones and some of the great editors. And it's still painful because you're making a product and you're a widget. And no matter how soulful they are, and I've been lucky in many cases with editors, you still have to perform. And so they've got one eye on you as a creative person and the other eye on you as a product. And you can feel which eye they're looking through. Mm-hmm. And when they evaluate the manuscript, they're not looking through the first eye. They're looking through the second eye, the product eye. And it just takes a long time to grasp that. And it's painful. Oh, we're just going to be so great. You're great. This is great. Oh, yeah. Everybody's very hopeful. And then when those things don't happen, it's, you know, they just start talking to someone else at the cocktail party. It's Mm. anyway, long-winded way of saying at some point, actually in 2018, I decided I'm not doing that game anymore. Mm. I think I'd written six books at that point. If it was my first book, I would not have made this decision, but because I had written and I had a mailing list, like I'm just going to self-publish. Mm-hmm. And by that point, I had the Open Heart Project, which you kindly mentioned, the online community with close to 20,000 people in it, meaning 20,000 email addresses and you know more than that. But basically, oh, why don't I just sell something to these people? They've already made some indication that they like me and I really like them. Mm-hmm. I know what they're thinking about, you know, in a very vague way because I get emails or we teach classes and I, I see what, what is interesting to them, which doesn't mean it has to be interesting to me, but where's the intersection? And so that was a great experience. The Four Noble Truths of Love. I mean, I'm so happy that I self-published it. We sold about 12,000 copies which I feel like, yay, that's great. 12,000 copies from me to you. Wow. And the Buddhist Enneagram, I also definitely wanted to self-publish because no, but it, it's a book that's, that it fits no niche. It fits no category. Mm-hmm. But I wanted the freedom to F it up or make it great or do whatever it is that was going to happen with it. <laughs> so, yeah. And then along the way, we started publishing other authors mostly teachers who teach in the Open Heart Project. So it's already stemming organically somehow. So I think this Buddhist Enneagram was our fifth book. Mm. I love that. Um, I I help women, I, I kind of midwife, I help women develop their memoir ideas and then bring them out into the world. And one of the things that brings me great joy is that there are multiple options. Traditional publishing is not the only route. And it's such a relief and it's so freeing to know that. And I wonder how how the experience has been for you 
with Lionheart Press and, and with putting your books out the way that you want to, what, what freedom and or hardship has that led to? Yeah, many, many kinds of freedom. But the key for me is I have a great editor Mm. named Crystal Gundrud. And she's like what you think an editor should be at a publishing house. Mm. Because what you think is, oh, this person's going to get in there and muck around with me. And we're going to, you know, she's going to make this book better because usually she. And they do, but only after it's written. Mm -hmm. They're not part of the process. These days, my understanding is if anyone's part of the creation process, it might be your agent, but it will not be your acquiring editor. Mm-hmm. Only when it's done do they look at it. So Crystal Gundrud is old school. I share it with her. She comments. She pushes me. She tells me things are good that I think are bad. She tells me things that things are bad that I think are good. Mm-hmm. And that's the key. If she wasn't there it would be much more difficult. Mm. Creatively, it's more of an investment and it's more interesting and I think results in better work. And the hardship is, well, it's expensive. Mm. All the, you got to pay for everything. Designing, editing, proofing, all the steps. And it's, it's a lot of work and I am not scared of a lot of work. That to me, that's not like, oh, it's a lot of work, so I'm not going to do it. No. But there are a thousand moving pieces from the ISBN code to the loading the audiobook onto Amazon's platform or wherever. And then there are decisions to make. Like my early decision for all our books was we will hold no inventory. Mm-hmm. No inventory for us. Mm-hmm. It will be only print on demand and digital formats. And so, but you could decide otherwise. You could say, I want my books in bookstores and make a relationship with a distributor. But I'm like, I don't care if the books are in bookstores. If, if they want it, they can buy it from Ingram's Park or, or something. But I'm not going to play that game because I know that game. Mm-hmm. Because I used to be in the music business, as mentioned. And you, you send 10, you get nine back at some point. So mm-hmm. I don't want that. <laughs> yes. I just know that so many women writers who are listening are going to really feel connected in this moment um, because so many of them want to see their work out in the world, but they don't want to play the game as Mm -hmm. you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so when you were writing the Buddhist Enneagram, how was it similar or different to writing your other books? Yeah. Thank you for that question. In some ways it was no different in that it was going into a hellhole and looking around and, you know, climbing back out. Any book would have that aspect, at least for me. But the process for creating it, it was the hardest thing I'd ever written. And I thought, oh, I could do this in a year, but it took me three years. And I tend to be fast, maybe facile uh, sometimes, I might say about myself, but I'm like, oh yeah, let's do it. Okay, got it. Let's do it. It might take me six months. It might take me a year. But this one, I couldn't see. I couldn't see it. I just knew that it was really in my own life as a teacher and a human being that the Buddha Dharma and the Enneagram were vastly intertwined in a way that was extremely helpful. And that's all I knew. And then to express what made that useful 
or how it would be Enneagram for people who don't know is a system that describes nine ways of being. So how could this be helpful to all those nine? How can I describe what the nine energies are? Yeah, it was a, it was a heavy lift, but Crystal was, who also loves the Dharma and the Enneagram. She was a very, very strong guiding light for me to create that gave me a lot of space too. Mm. And every time I would think, oh yeah, I think I know where to go. I would run into a wall. It was one of those writing experiences that was so blind. And every writer, everyone who's listening will will understand this experience of you write something and you're like, oh, it's pretty good. And then you come back the next day and you're like, that's horrible. (laughs) What what did those words do overnight (laughs) to make them into them horrible? And then you might come back again and go, well, I don't know. There's something living in the words and the writer and in the relationship between the words and the writer. And like any relationship, it's always in flux. So this one was a particularly lousy with flux. I couldn't tell if it was good or bad for Mm. a very long time. And there are many aspects of it that I'm still not sure. Mm. So what do you think a good editor like Crystal or a good writing partner, any good mentor, what do you think they do to help you keep going even through what I call the murky middle or even when it feels very unclear what helps yeah well it's really kind of sad (laughs) (laughs) what what really helps is being told you're good Mm. what you have to say is should be said and you have a, a view that is unique and you should just keep going just the to be affirmed that's what helps there's no trick tricks or like try writing underwater or try, I don't know what recording what you're going to say. Those things don't help, (laughs) but just someone that holds the space with you with gentleness and sharpness one without the other, not good, but Crystal is really good at both of those. Mm. And how does your, Buddhist practice and your all of your Buddhist knowledge, how does that help at all in the writing process? It helps so much. First, it, it always gives me, whether it's overt or just visible to me, it gives me a way to structure things. Mm. Because the Buddha Dharma is structured around what's called three yanas, three vehicles that are inseparable from each other. And the first is foundational. I won't go into a whole Buddhist talk, but what are the foundational things that you need to be a spiritual practitioner? You need discipline, you need simplicity, blah, blah, blah. Then the Mahayana, when you have that foundation, your heart opens just naturally. So the teachings there are on compassion and loving kindness and so on. And then the third yana, even though they're not sequential, they're numbered as if they were, is the magic that is and the possibility of transformation that is present when you're stable and open. Mm. So in writing the book, I'm like, okay, what is the Hinayana? What is the foundation? What are the foundational principles here? Then what is the, what are the heart opening principles? And then where's the magic? So that has always been a really important for me, a, a structuring tool. And when I teach meditation and writing retreats, I, try to point out that 
meditation and writing have cer certain similarities, though they are not the same thing. And those similarities are just starting with meditation. It is very one pointed. Mm. Place your attention on the breath in the case of the practice I teach other things and other practices, but that's it. That's it. Buddha comes and sits down in front of you and says, you're the next Buddha. You're like, sorry, <laughs> come back to the breath. You're just, it's that focused. Mm. That's called mindfulness. Yeah. And then from that, I, this is the mystery part, insights arise, mm. passion arises from the one-pointedness. So the meditation practice is both one-pointed and panoramic because you're allowing yourself to be as you are and everything softens, one-pointed, panoramic. I find writing to be very similar. It is one-pointed in that you can only write one word at a time, mm. how hard you try, it's word word mm. word mm. and it's spacious it's panoramic because how do you know what to say something arises on good days and then you go You're constantly in both practices modulating between one pointed and panoramic so i i find that helpful and also what i've learned from my meditation practice is yeah maybe speedy and racy and not like myself but just hang in there because there are going to be other feelings or other boredom or joy, whatever it might be. And same with writing, just hang in there, just hang in there, ride this wave, get to the next wave, see what happens. Mm. All these years that I've been writing and as of late meditating, and I never thought about, you know, there's breath, breath, there's word, word. It seems so obvious now, but... <laughs> I'm glad it's, it didn't occur to me too until one day I was like, why am I writing so well when I'm on a meditation retreat? Okay. Oh my gosh. Well, speaking of which, and, and we are going to get to your dear book in a, a minute, but you brought up retreat and, and teaching meditation. And for me, I didn't realize the power of meditation with my writing practice, how the two coincide until a few years ago, I went on a silent retreat in Santa Fe with Natalie Goldberg. Oh, how nice. It was, I'm, I'm so glad that I was able to do that. And funny story, I was teaching at a university at the time and every year you got a little bit of professional development funds and you were supposed to use them to attend an academic conference. Well, I never much felt like an academic and I was always doing this stuff on the side and wanting to deepen my meditation practice. And, and so I somehow wrote up in the description to make it sound as if this sit, walk, write retreat was very academic. Awesome. <laughs> you. And so that's how I was able to go to it anyway. So, so I went and I found Oh my goodness. I, I had always meditated in the afternoon I had and I had always written in the morning and with her setup, we, we meditated in the morning, we sat for 30 minutes and then we would do the writing and it felt so different. I felt so much more open, not like I was forcing the words then, but that I was open to whatever wanted to be written. And so two things, I'm wondering 
just literally what your writing process looks like. Is it morning? Is it after meditation before? And then I, I want to talk a bit about retreat. So what does writing look like for you and how does it weave in with meditation? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Uh, so the process is not uniform mm -hmm. and it's not willy nilly. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know. But just going back, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of elaborate yeah. on that. But the retreat thing is that this is the key, what you just said. Writing in the morning and meditating in the afternoon or vice versa, either way, it's totally fine. But what really is necessary is a container. Mm -hmm. And Julia Cameron, she said this once in a conversation with Natalie Goldberg oh. that happened to have been recorded. And I had the cassette because like 25 years ago, uh, yes, she said, I'll never forget this. The first rule of magic is containment. And that is a phrase to live by. You have to have a container for magic. Otherwise it's just energy streams that just go hither and yon. And uh -huh. on a repeat, the container is the schedule. Uh -huh. This, we do that we take a break, we come back, it creates containment, which is essential in the writing process. So most people, probably us included, think, well, you just get up and you make yourself do it, or you have a routine and you don't get up to you've written a thousand words or 50,000 words or whatever it is. And that is impossible for me. Uh -huh. And it's not because I'm a prima donna. I mean, I can be, but not about this. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I don't know why. Some people thrive on that because the container, which is so important, cannot be self-generated. That's why writing groups are so good and writing retreats are so powerful and having a writing coach, you know, there's a container there, there's a relationship. They are expecting something from you. If you have a, a deadline, that's a container. Mm. Just everything in the ether is not a container. So. For me, deadlines absolutely provide containers and then I write and I really like to write in the mornings. But I also find that sometimes in the evening, I'm like, ah, oh, I wanna just go back and noodle a little bit. But what I usually do is I just try, mm. just try. And I write what's on my mind, not, it sounds very undisciplined, but hopefully it's the bell that rings between undisciplined and regimented. Mm -hmm. Just, okay, this is what's coming to mind. Let me, I want to tell this anecdote. I don't know where it fits, but okay, let me just write it. Mm -hmm. I want to share this idea. I don't know where it fits, but let me just write it. So all these patches, like if you're making a quilt, and then at some point I just try to put them all in one document. They're all separate documents. And then see if a flow suggests itself. Mm. Of course, as you know, in the nonfiction world, you write a proposal. Mm -hmm. So you, you want to try to follow that. But I'll tell you a brief story about, I wrote a book called The Wisdom of a Broken Heart. And that, that's how Michelle and I met actually talking about that book. Hi, Michelle. Mm -hmm. uh, she helped me. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I was really stuck. And I happened to be at a retreat center on a personal writing retreat. And the public outline that the publisher had had seven chapters. Mm. 
and I, I ran into someone there at the retreat center who's like one of the best editors of Buddhist texts in the, in the world. Like the best. She's Pema Chodron, Chogyam Trungpa. I mean, she's edited like oh. really crazy good books. Yeah. And so I said, hey, how you doing? And she said, I'm bored. I don't have anything to do. They're like, well, see this document over here. This is your lucky day. <laughs> I said, can I hire you for one day to look at this and tell me where, what do you think? And so, yeah, she said, but I need to print it out. So I, somehow I found a way to print it. I gave it to her, came back 24 hours later. And she said, I have three words for you. And these three words are always important. View, which in Buddhism means your perspective, your realization, your understanding, view, voice, and structure. She said, your view is good. That was very nice to hear from her. Your voice is fine. It's your voice. The structure is messed up. You have to take the seven chapters and turn them into 27 chapters. She literally said this to me. And they should be in three sections. And the first section should be called relax. The second section could be called see where you are. And the third section should be called be where you are. Would you like a cookie? <laughs> I love that story. How lucky is that? That's another falling backwards thing. Like I, should, oh, I just happened to run into her and then she gave me the key. Thank you, Emily. I'll never forget you for this. So, but that's helpful voice, view and structure. So when anyone gets stuck in their work, are you stuck on view? Are you stuck on voice? Are you stuck on structure? Usually it's one predominates at a particular moment. Mm. Oh, that's so helpful. And it's just reassuring to hear too, when I talk to other writers that they write these islands, same as I do, meaning that mm. I just, my approach is just pay attention to what you're paying attention to and, and write that piece that day. And they're just kind of these islands that seem like they're all by themselves. And it's not until you have, I don't know, 20, 30, however many islands and you print them out and you see what the book wants to be. <laughs> love that. I love that. And that is so beautifully said. And I, yeah, I, I we're of like minds here. And I'm so glad to know there's someone else that does it this way. Oh, wow. I just, I just love the serendipity or whatever you might want to call it of that day though. I'm bored. <laughs> well, I've got something for you. <laughs> yes. Let's chat. Ah, oh, and so with retreat, my listeners are probably so sick of hearing me talk about <laughs> the power of retreat, the benefit of retreat. I just got back from just putting myself in a hotel for four days just to get clear. So I could talk about retreat all day long, but you were talking about container and of the many things I dog-eared in your book, you said different things create containment. Deadlines create containers for writers. Going on retreat creates containment for consistent meditation practice. And then we'll talk about the Enneagram and how it's a container, but tell us a bit more about retreat. What does retreat look like for you when you go on it yourself? And then when you lead retreats? Well, when I go on it myself, I'm just put myself in the hands of the retreat and 
you know, I've been a Buddhist practitioner for close to 30 years. Doesn't mean I'm any better at meditation than anyone else because I'm really not. But there are certain things I really like studying. And there are certain lineages within Tibetan Buddhism that I feel very drawn to. So I like to go on retreat to study those things, to practice those things. And most of all, to be in the presence of teachers who have given me so much. Hmm. That is, that's, that's really, I'm so lucky. And then when I lead a retreat, I teach all sorts of things, meditation and writing. I've been teaching retreats in my house in Austin, Texas, where I am right now, for 12 people. Hmm. And that's been great. This is like the self-publishing version of doing a retreat. And then in July, I'm going to teach her a two-week retreat with a great teacher named Michael Carroll at a retreat center. In fact, the retreat center where I ran into this editor. Uh, and that's great. That's much more. I've taught there before. I've been on many retreats there. There's a real container. Yeah. So it's a very, we're all very practice oriented though. What do you think you notice in your own life about what happens when you have containers and then you have some magic in the mix? What happens for you personally during a retreat that feels really beneficial? I'm thinking, sadly, it's been a while that I've been, especially during COVID, I have, I've only been on one retreat that I haven't taught. Mm. The main thing that happens that I value is my understanding of the Dharma deepens. Hmm. And that's not a small thing to me. And there's no way of understanding it finally, ever. But it just starts to mean more and more. And I, like I say, there's things I chant in the morning that I've been chanting for 30 years, every day, like the Heart Sutra. It's incomprehensible. But when I teach a retreat on the Heart Sutra, it comes alive to me and so the path of the teacher is a very profound path, as I'm sure you know. You have to understand, you don't have to, you get to understand the teaching mm. way more profoundly than anyone who you're teaching it to. So I really value that. I live for that. Mm. I love that. And when we think about the book about the Buddhist Enneagram, what kind of led you, you have this deep knowledge of, of both Buddhism and the Enneagram and what led you to start really thinking about writing all this wisdom down? Yeah. Because I, I think you said, um, in one of the interviews, something about like, there's the beauty of the no credentials or something yeah. like that, which I loved. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm glad that you like that. Yeah, I have the good, I don't know what I said, beauty or good something, fortune. good fortune of the having no credentials. I never went to college. I'm not a T, you know, I just, I'm not a therapist. Oh, okay. That's, I'm completely free then. <laughs> um, so, Nothing made me think I have to write this. Uh -huh. One thing that I noticed over and over again, because I've been studying the Enneagram also for close to 30 years, is on the Buddhist teachings on compassion, which are 
vast and indescribable and central and really hard to do. Nothing helped me to be more compassionate on the ground in my life than the Enneagram. Compassionate towards myself and compassionate towards others. So I'm like, oh, this really helps. But for 15 years or 20 years, I didn't, it's just something that I found really useful. And I taught the Enneagram to my editor, Crystal. She wasn't my editor at the time. She was my friend and other friends. And, and then I started teaching it a little bit in the Open Heart Project. Like here, you make of this what you will. Here's what the Enneagram is. But then, you know, if we're looking at the difference between authoring and shepherding, it was really one of those things where this has to happen. This, ha this must get written. And I hope I'm good enough to write it. And I don't know. Let's see. Yeah. It, you know, the stories percolate in there. The anecdotes, the observations. And then you well, I'm I'm wired to be a teacher, just for whatever reason. I seems to be the my wiring. So let me teach this is what really motivated me. Yeah, and that's the beauty of it, is that you know, the, the irony, first of all, of the no credentials, because you've been practicing and studying for 30 years. So I would call that credentials. But one of the things I love that you describe in the book is the mystery around the history of the Enneagram. Right. And no one can quite point. And even people will, who is it, Claudio, maybe who said, like, I told my students it was a Sufi thing and just to, so they would stop bugging me about it. But there's all this mystery, but what everyone or most people, I should say, can agree on is that it helps. It helps us understand ourselves and therefore it helps us understand other people too. And then how we can interact with or react to other people. You gave a wonderful example of a boss who never saw problems. He only saw possibility. And so if you might approach him and say, oh, there's a problem here, he might glaze over, but knowing where he falls on the Enneagram and going, oh, from his lens, he's only interested in possibility. So I'm going to bring forth to him a possibility is <laughs> wonderful. So when we dive into the Enneagram from a Buddhist lens, how has it helped you understand yourself and therefore other people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, for me and for many people who find their type, the first you're like appalled. <laughs> oh, shit, no. <laughs> and then you're, you find, I found, I'll just speak for myself, that I let myself off the hook for things that I thought were very problematic mm. about myself because I saw them instead as my wiring. Mm -hmm. I, again, what you said about the Enneagram is so great. It, it doesn't matter where it comes from. It's true. Is it not true? It helps. That's perfect. Mm -hmm. That's the perfect way to describe the benefit. And I really appreciate that. It helped me to soften towards myself. I'm a four on the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. and I'm a self-preservation four because there's three kinds of fours, three kinds of sevens, three kinds of twos. And I never would have pegged myself as someone on the so-called emotional triad within the Enneagram. And I didn't peg myself as a four, which is often described as tragic romantic or drama kings and queens. I, I didn't know mm -hmm. me, according to me. Mm -hmm. I, when I read about the self-preservation four, I'm like, oh, that is bullseye. Mm -hmm. So it explained the choices I made as a young person, mm. as 
recontextualized as sort of longing for love rather than rebellious FUs everywhere. Mm-hmm. And someone could have told me that, but it wouldn't have felt real. But when I saw this explanation of this wiring of a self-preservation for, and I let myself off the hook for other things. I, some I wrote about in the book, like the kind way I am a friend to people who I love. It's not always the best way, but it's the way that works for me. And, and then I started to see others, they're wired not in the same way as me. Mm. And the Enneagram sort of describes nine arcs of attention. Like if all nine walk into a room, nine different things get their attention. But each one thinks everyone's attention is going to the thing that they think is important. Mm-hmm. But it is. So when you can see where someone else's attention is going to go, you can meet them there. And you can dialogue with them about what is important to them and try to get them to see what's important to you, perhaps. And it's just endlessly practical. Mm. That's what I loved about the book is really just seeing how it can be a way of understanding your partner, your friends, your coworkers, anyone you meet in the world. And I'll have you in a moment, kind of, if you don't mind describing like the nine different warrior types, but I'm a, a self-described one, and I, um, when I first learned about ones, there was so much that I didn't want to admit <laughs> that, that I shared with ones, but then so many things that just felt like, oh, that's why I do what I do. That mm-hmm. is why I think what I think. That is why. And the idea of the self-acceptance ultimately was such a relief that to me was the greatest gift of this was the self-acceptance that came. That's so great. Mm -hmm. That's so great. I'm so happy to hear that. Happy for you and happy for all the people who love you because it's good for them that you see yourself clearly. And that's great. And yeah, first you're appalled and then you're like, oh, well, okay. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You know, your subtype. Oh, I I have to look back. I underlined it when I, the first read through, can't remember if it was self-preservation. Oh, I have to double check. But I think too, the thing that really helped me was the idea of also like the passion and the poison. Like you talk about aspirin could really help in the right dose if you're in pain or if you take way too many, it will not. It's poison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this idea of, was it ones where it's like anger versus serenity? Like there's anger, but if it's really at its core, there's kind of like a clarity there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that was pivotal and that was huge. So rather, I don't want to talk about myself too much because I want the, the listeners to kind of maybe see these nine types. And I know it's so hard to give like a sweeping, a quick summary or a sweeping overview, but if you can kind of just talk about these nine different warriors, Mm -hmm. um, I think that might help them. Sure. So I made up the warrior names, the whole Enneagram made up, but anyway, I made up these warrior names and I think what would be useful is to just talk about the diagram. Yes. Nine types on a circle. And the nine types are divided into three groups of three, dependent on center of intelligence. So we each have all these forms of intelligence, but for each of us, one is predominant. 
eight, nine, and one are on the intuitive triad, the gut triad. And when things don't go their way, they tend to get angry in three different ways. And that's what we'll come back to that. Then two, three, and four are the numbers on the emotional triad. And when things don't go their way, they, the emotions become unbalanced and they become depressed or hysterical. I hate that word, but mm-hmm. needy and so on. And five, six, and seven are the mental triad. And when things don't go their way in three different ways, they start thinking harder. What about this? Where should I do that? Because that's their main defense. So that starts to look like anxiety. Mm. Now, within each triad, we'll take eight, nine, and one as an example, the intuitive triad, one of the three numbers overexpresses the core energy, in this case, eight. So they're angry, they get angry, you know they're angry, get out of their way, they're angry. Nine is disconnected from their, their core energy. They don't know they're angry, but they are. So they're sort of a little floaty. And one, in this case, holds the core energy in, introjects the energy. So if eight overexpresses it, nines like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. And ones are eating it. Mm-hmm. So that brings a kind of anger that more relates to resentment. You can feel it, not in you. Mm-hmm. So in the emotional triad, two overexpresses the emotional energy. They're constantly trying to make emotional connections in good and bad ways. Threes don't know what they feel. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you feel. You just go on appearances because you don't know what's under the hood of anything. Mm-hmm. Appearances are very important. And fours, like ones, interject the core energy. Fours interject the core energy of the emotional triad. So all the emotions are held within. And everything that's happening out here is felt as something that's happening in here. It can be a very self-absorbed position and also very poetic. Five, six, and seven. Five is on the mental triad that holds the mental energy in. So they're, they're thinking, they're observing, they're categorizing, they're weighing, they're measuring. They don't necessarily want to talk about it. There's an inner life of wizardry and interest in knowledge for knowledge's sake. And six is disconnected from what they think, which is very painful. And you don't know if what you think is accurate. Mm. You're second guessing everything. So they, they tend to be full of doubt. And sevens, my ex-boss, all the emo- mental energy goes out. And that looks like planning and potential and visions. And we could do this. And I see this. And that's on the horizon. And so it all goes out. But And then within each type, there's a a passion and an avoidance. You talked about the poison and the medicine. There's an idealization and there's an integration point and a disintegration point and so on. So it's enormously and joyfully, I would say, complex. It's so rich. And that's what I love too, because the other thing that I felt from the book is that many things might show itself. So it's a container that's actually freeing. So while I might describe myself as one, I can also see how I I can kind of glean from every single number, something interesting and how that manifests and how it shows forth in life. And so it was a way of not compartmentalizing myself, but the opposite of kind of looking at 
motivation and reaction and what happens when we feel something, what do we do with it? Do we, you know, or do we? <laughs> so great. That's so great. The way you're looking at it and you're holding it as like an, uh, an instruction manual. And I think that's really uh, accurate because we don't want to make nine ghettos, you mm -hmm. know, nine boxes. I'll put you in the seven box, put you in the two box. That would be a misuse, but they're nine operating manuals, nine blueprints. And wouldn't you want the blueprint of the people that you love and the people you don't like and all that? So it's very helpful in that way. And it's not, you know, sometimes people feel like, well, I don't want to be a number. I, I don't want to be just one thing or that's impossible. Okay. You write your own book then. <laughs> um, <laughs> what, the way I think of it is I was born in Washington, DC. That's a fact. That's a true fact. I was born in Washington, DC. Wherever I go to live, I will always have been born in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean I can't become a New Englander or a Parisian or I can go anywhere I want. Mm -hmm. But this will always be true. Mm -hmm. So that's how I look at the Enneagram, that you are this number, but you can go anywhere you want. Yes. That information and glean, as you say, the wisdom of the other eight types, which is vast. And how have you noticed in say even your own marriage partnership how how this presents itself and how it might help or or hurt <laughs> well it hasn't hurt Good. it has helped enormously because he is a one yep and my mother is a one so i really know the one energy mm -hmm. you know as a, not a one uh he's a, what's called a sexual one mm -hmm. not a self-preservation one not a social one it's called heat mm -hmm. Self-preservation four is called reckless. So that gives you little clues there. <laughs> so the attention of one goes to error, right and wrong. Yeah. And the attention of four does not, goes to meaning. Mm. Now, those are two different things to focus on if you're having an argument with someone. He wants to talk about the error. And I'm like, why? That, that's not helpful. That's not useful. Mm -hmm. But to him, it is. So it took me a decade or something to honor that. Like, oh, okay, well, I'll try it. So when we get in an argument, I try to reference error, not his, not mine, but we both make mistakes. So I see where this went wrong. I see how this could have happened in a better way. And that is really helpful to him. And he then has more bandwidth to hear my ruminations mm. about what it all means, which for a long time, he was like, well, why would you want to talk about that? Let's just fix it. <laughs> <laughs> Over the years, we've been married almost 25 years. We have learned to make space for the other's way on good days. What I love about that is how it benefits each, where if he is allowed to talk about the error, then he can hold more space to talk about the meaning. That is the key. It is. Mm. If you feel heard and seen by the person you're in a conversation with, no matter how angry I am at that person, if I can mm -hmm. still see him and hear him and remain angry because I may, for very good reason, perhaps, then all, all things are possible. Mm -hmm. But if I shut down and say, I don't, I'm not going to see you, I'm not going to hear you, I'm just going to hear myself, no things are possible. Oh, that's so spot on. 
Well, there's one more thing I would love for you to talk about before we end this wonderful conversation, which is your open heart project and all the goodness that it does for, so for anyone who's unfamiliar, maybe you can tell us a bit about it. Yeah, with pleasure. The Open Heart Project is an online meditation community that just started as a way for people to get meditation instruction who couldn't find any place else to get it. And then over the years, it has become more than that. Yes, you can learn to meditate. You can explore the Buddhist path if you want, but you don't have to. You can explore your spiritual path. And it's a really wonderful group of independent-minded people who want a true spiritual path, but don't want dogma and don't want a, a teacher and don't want levels, but they want what's something real. So we have, I teach people how to teach meditation. So we have a meditation instructor training program. I teach courses, other teachers teach courses on, you know, relationships and money and things that are everyday life things. And it's a joy. It's become a great joy to me. Mm. I really, really appreciate just the amount of resources that the Open Heart Project gives because when I started meditating years ago, there wasn't like a meditation center down the, the street. And so I had to just go looking online. And at first it felt like such a wide abyss. I didn't even realize how many styles of meditation. And I mean, I felt so lost for a, a long time trying to find my way. Mm -hmm. So if a person can come to the Open Heart Project and they can start and, and have so many resources available, which I think is so helpful. That's the hope. My training as a teacher was don't teach anyone anything, help them to discover something. Mm. That is a very valuable instruction. So, mm. yeah. And I'm glad you found the style that speaks to you, assuming that you did. I'm always still looking and searching. So I just said to myself today in at the end of meditation, I want to be more of a student because as you just said, I think from the lens of a teacher a lot, which I love teaching is my passion, but I just consider myself a midwife. I consider myself someone helping on the journey but I love being a student. <laughs> I love being a student and we are teachers and students at the same time. But I was just thinking this morning about how I'm hungry. I'm a, I'm a sponge. I'm, I'm looking to know more, so much more in the greater realm of spirituality, but with meditation practice as well. So that's great. And you do not have to include this in the recording. But I do want to tell you that in mid-March, I'm starting a 15-week program called, and I'm not trying to sell you anything. I just think no, it's, no, no. it's called Buddhist Immersion and Meditation Teacher Training, Embarking on the Teaching Path. So you don't ever have to teach meditation unless you want to, but the teaching path as a, as a spiritual path is the emphasis. And it's Saturdays, 10 to 12, and we're going to look at very foundational Buddhist teachings and according to the three Yanas that we talked about earlier and so on. So, Oh, that sounds so good. <laughs> I hope it will be. It's a first time for me to teach it. And it's crafted to answer that question. Like I want to deepen this and I don't know where to turn and I want to deepen it my way. 
Oh, this has been so wonderful. So my very, very last question is this. My podcast is called Heart of the Story. My journal that's coming out is called Come Home to Your Heart. I'm very heart-centered. Hearts everywhere around here. Hearts, hearts, hearts. (laughs) So tell me what's on your heart these days. Hmm. Well, this may sound bogus maybe, but who am I? Mm-hmm. Who the hell am I? And how do I pull this wall that I built around myself down mm. so I can find out? Oh, I think that's a resounding question. <laughs> it's a really good question. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing yourself, your presence with us. This has been an absolute delight. I love this. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you too. I really, really enjoyed talking with you. I feel very aligned and mind meldy. And thank you for your excellent questions and your good presence. Thank you. Oh, wasn't that an incredible chat? Oh, I am going to be thinking about this one for a long, long time. And so I'll put all of the links in the show notes. You can find out more at susanpiver.com. But I would really love to know what goodies you took away from this conversation. So let us know on Instagram. You can tag me at Nadine Kenny Johnstone, tag Susan at susan.piver, and let us know what takeaways felt fulfilling and soul nourishing. I am just so, so grateful that Susan came on the show today. Thank you, Michelle Rado, for not only being an incredible producer, but for introducing me to Susan. (laughs) And um, Michelle has a wonderful interview with Susan on her podcast, Daring to Tell, which you should check out. Grab yourself the Buddhist Enneagram. You won't be disappointed. And remember, everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week.